Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series Authentic, a study on the book of James. We are going to be in the book of James. Um, so go ahead and turn there if you don't have a Bible. Here's one in front of you in the seat. We're on page 654 in that little Bible there. So if you grab that one. And kind of one of the things I want to do with this series, if you're not used to bringing your Bible and you're kind of addicted to the slides, get unaddicted to the slides and start bringing your Bible if you have one. If not, take that one in front of you home and use that one until you can go up to Lifeway or get on Amazon and buy you a big, fat, leather-smelling, you know, nice, manly, or perfumey-smelling, if you're a woman, Bible. Just get your own. I recommend the ESV because that's what we use here. But get one that you can bring and mark up and kind of circle and write notes in. As we kind of jump into this book, we're not only going to work through this book, but we kind of want this book to work through us over the next couple months. And so um, we're going to be here, and so it'll be a great time to just kind of start that process of, uh, of using your own copy of the Word of God as we just got done a series talking about how precious it is. So um, there's something new and exciting, you know, exciting about a new book, and, and you know, when it was clear about six months ago when we were going to be in James next... Um, I was kind of like a little timid and excited at the same time, because if you know the book of James, it's kind of a in-your-face book. Um, some people have come up, oh, it's my favorite book. I'm thinking, are you a sick person? Do you like being beat down? I mean, this is not an easy book. So I'm thinking, why not like Mark? It's so nice. And this is like an in-your-face book. Like, I think if James was written, I mean, if we could meet James today, I think James would be a close talker. All right, he'd be, okay, for this Seinfeld, because he's in your grill so much, I think he just likes it. So he's going to be five chapters, 108 verses just in our grill for the next couple months. Um, and, and so it's, it's going to be challenging, but I think it'll be healthy uh, for our church. And, and we've entitled the series Authentic, because really, when you kind of sum up what the book of James is about, the book of James is about authentic faith. That's what it's about, real, legitimate, genuine faith. James has no time for those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but their life does not show it. He just, he's not into the whole, I profess this, but I don't act this out in my life. Um, and so he's going to be talking for five chapters of what does it look like to have authentic, real faith lived out, okay? That's what we're going to be looking at for the next couple months, all right, and what we're going to do today is we are just going to crack the door on this little epistle. We're going to look at one verse. You're like, one verse, one verse, right? Um, and, and really what I want to do is I want you to know, oh, man, that was good. I don't know what happened there, but that was good. Uh, I want you to know who this guy is because he's going to be in your grill and he's going to be kicking our tails for about three or four months. So at least you could know a little bit about the guy as he's going to be doing this because he's got a story that's, I think, significant. I think his story of, of where he came from and who he is, I think it'll mean something to us as we get in this little epistle, all right? So we're going to talk just big picture today. Anytime we look at a book of the Bible, we want to know kind of the big background questions. This is what we talked about last week when we gave you the bookmark, and what does it mean, and what does it mean to the original audience, and all those things. Who was this written to? Who was it written by? Who was it? What is the purpose? What's all those things? They are significant in understanding the book. Remember, this is a real letter from a real guy to real people. It's what we call a general epistle, not because it's from a general, but because it's not specifically to one guy or one specific church. It's to 
a, a group of people, a group of churches, and we'll see who that is in a minute. So when was this, let me, let me read the first verse, let me read the verse we're going to look at, and then we will uh, jump into our text for the day, all right? Chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. All right, now when was this little book written? Most of those scholars in our camp would, would say that this is probably the first book of the New Testament as far as chronologically, all right? So this is the first New Testament letter written. This is before Matthew. This is before Romans. This is before First and Second Thessalonians. This is number one, very early. Some people put it in around 45 to 48 AD, and there's all sorts of reasons why. The biggest is because you don't hear anything about the Jerusalem Council, which took place in 49 AD, and this letter, and that would have been a significant event in the church. But it's, it's probably the earliest letter of the New Testament, okay? And it's written, it says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What is that all about? Well, remember, early on, 45, 46 AD, the church is predominantly Jewish, and it's predominantly in Jerusalem. Okay, it's real early. All these missionary journeys are not taking place yet. Okay, and so the church starts in Jerusalem and stays there for a while until there's persecution. And upon persecution, it starts to spread to the north, to the northeast, and then, then when Paul goes through modern-day Turkey in, on his missionary journeys. So the dispersion here, what he's talking about is not just the spiritual church of spiritual Israel. This is literally the 12 tribes, the Jewish people who are now followers of Jesus, who have been spread because of persecution in the book of Acts. It goes all into this. Acts 8, Saul was ravaging the church and spread them out. Acts 11, the church was spread because of the persecution. So the church is getting kicked out of Jerusalem and spread north and northeast. And this letter is written by James to those people who are facing really some hard situations. They lose their land, they lose their jobs, they, lose their, they grew up here, they're now in a city they don't know anybody, and, and it's, it's a tough deal. They're being oppressed by rich people, and you see that throughout this, this letter. And he is writing to encourage these people to not put their faith on the shelf, because when pressure happens and it starts to get really hard, you got two options. Number one, you can kind of bind together and find other believers and you can stand firm and you can, and you can st withstand that test or you can compromise and just kind of, well, forget it. I'll just blend. Kind of path of least resistance. And what James is writing to these people is, no, you're a follower of Jesus. You got to live this deal out even when it's hard. Even in this new environment, even in this new city, even in this situation, you can't just kind of live the way you want. I believe in Jesus, but then kind of go and do what you want. It's got to be real. It's got to be authentic. And he's going to unpack what that looks like, okay? And, and some people in the, in the church have had a hard time with the book of James because they misunderstood what James is talking about, especially guys like Luther, who called it a very strawly epistle. He didn't want it in the, in the canon at all. He thought, this is not supposed to be here. And the reason Luther didn't want it is because Luther was such a champion of justification by faith alone that you are justified before God because of faith. And when we get to chapter two and James is gonna be like, well, your faith alone can't save you. And so James, Luther's thinking, oh wait, that's a contradiction from Paul. But when you understand that they're talking about two different things where Paul is arguing, how is a person justified before God? By faith alone. He's talking about the court of heaven the court of God, where James is not talking about the court of heaven. James is talking about the court of man. How do I know someone is truly saved? Well, their life will dictate and show that. And that's what James is talking about. He's not talking about justification before God. He's talking about justification before man. How does someone prove that they are saved? It's not just merely by the profession. 
It's by their life. And so they're really talking about the same thing, different sides of the same coin, all right? What does authentic faith look like when it is lived out? Not just a merely a, a verbal profession, real, active faith. So that's what this book's gonna go. And so we got the when, we got the who it's written to, um, why. Let's talk a little bit about this guy named James. He calls himself a servant of God. His name in the Greek is Yakabas, right? It's a Greek version of a Hebrew name. You can hear it a little bit in there. Yaakov, Jacob, right? It's the Greek version of Jacob. Now you're thinking, if you're kind of a little bit questioning the text sometimes, Jacob to James. How did that happen? The answer is, we kind of don't know, okay? But what has been suggested is this, and I think rightfully so. The first English version of your Bible was authorized by a man named King, what? James. And so many think that good old King James wanted to see his, his name in the English Bible. And so Jacob, sounds like James, good, let's put it in there, okay? All right, but his name, ultimately, he would have been called, growing up, Jacob, all right? which was obviously for a Jewish boy, a Jewish family, huge hero of the faith, right? Jacob, the son of Isaac, one of the, he's the his name was chained, it changed to Israel. That's what, you know, you would name your, your children after these great heroes of the faith. So it's a very common name, right? And there's several different Jameses in the New Testament. So which one is the one who wrote this letter? We got four that have been suggested. You got one guy named James, the father of Judas, or Thaddeus, as he's known otherwise. He is the father of one of the 12 apostles. But it's highly unlikely that just some dad of one of the 12 is the author of such an epistle that has so much power and clout behind it. So most people, it couldn't be that guy. There's another James, James, the son of Alpheus. You know, your you know, old little discipleship song, they were 12 disciples, Jesus called to help him. You know, you know that one. James, the son of Alphaeus, is one of those guys, right? James, the son of Alphaeus, is one of the 12. He's also called James the Less because he was probably a younger brother. But this is an epistle that's got such authority and power behind it that most people think, we don't really know much about James, the son of Alphaeus. I mean, you don't really see him in the, I mean, you know he's one of the 12, but beyond that, we kind of don't know much about him. So most people would say, no, nah, it's probably not him. This guy has a little bit more kind of authority behind him in that. There's another James, James, the son of Zebedee. Ah, now we know him. He's one of the sons of thunder. He's, he's the brother of John. He is one of the three that are in the inner circle with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, right? That's Jesus's inner circle. And he, we know he's, he's a big mouth. We know he's in your face. So it could be that James, the son of Zebedee, is the author of this book. It's very possible, except that guy got killed about 40 AD, he was the first, first apostle that was killed, right? Um, his brother lives a long time, lives in past 90 AD and writes the book of Revelation, writes the gospel of John, but he's gone. And, and so it's, it's highly doubtful that he wrote this, especially since he died so early. So he couldn't be the author of this. In reality, there's only one other guy in the New Testament who can just write James, right? Doesn't say James, anything else. You just say James and everybody knows who you are. It's like saying the Godfather. I was AMC Classic yesterday, the Godfather Marathon. Loved it. Everyone loved it. Loved it, right? But when you say the Godfather, there's only one Godfather, right? There's only, everyone knows, oh, there was this kid in high school, we called his, no, no, there's only one Godfather, Marlon Brando and his son, right? They're the Godfathers. 
Well, there's only one guy in the early church where you could just say, you could just drop James, and everybody knows who he is, right? Everybody knows. That is James, who Paul in Galatians 1 says is the brother of the Lord. James, the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. That's the only guy that's got this kind of clout. And that's what church history affirms, by the way, that this is the guy who penned the letter. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will not agree with me on that. But there's a reason they won't agree with me, because they hold to a doctrine called Semper Virgo. That is not the Marine Corps' motto. That would be Semper Fidelis, okay? This is Semper Virgo, which simply means always a virgin, right? Which is a, a core doctrine of what they hold to, but is, it's not sustainable by Scripture, to which Joseph, her husband, says amen, right? But if you read Mark 6, he would have really been a saint then, right? Um, if you read Mark 6, Jesus has at least four brothers, James, Judas, Joseph, and Simeon. And then it says he has sisters, plural, which means there's at least two of them, maybe more, but no two. That would be at least six siblings. That means Jesus is the oldest of seven, potentially more, depending on how many sisters. If he had 10 sisters, then he'd be the oldest of, what, 15. But we know he had at least two sisters and four brothers. So he is big family here. He is the oldest of at least seven, right, according to the scripture. So that that is significant, all right? That's huge that he is the half-brother of the Lord because you go back to our text and it says Jesus, I mean, James, a servant of God. Now, remember, in our, we gave the bookmark out last week and, and number two on the list is what did it mean to the original audience? When they know who James is and he says, I am James, a doulos is the, is the Greek word. And it's a word that ultimately at its core means slave. All right, that, that's the core meaning. Now, we, in English, we translate it servant or bondservant because, quite honestly, we don't like the terminology because of our history and our background. But at its core meaning, the word doulos means a slave, someone who voluntarily places himself in a servant-slave relationship with someone else. And he says, I am James, I am a slave, I am a servant of God, which is fine, but notice what he says next, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am, he's basically saying this, get this now, what did it mean to the original audience? He's saying, I am a slave of my big brother, Jesus Christ, Christ is his title, Jesus the Messiah, who is also the Lord. That is a hugely significant statement from a little brother. It's one thing to look up to your big brother, it's another thing to call him Lord, which is the equivalent of saying he is Yahweh of the Old Testament. I believe my brother to be God. That's big. It's huge. And what's interesting is James wasn't always there. He, he, he didn't just, oh, he did, oh, look, big brother, he's seven, I'm four. He's God. No, no. He didn't always come to that conclusion. What's interesting about the Gospels is we don't have a big picture of what happened for 30 years in Jesus' life. We have kind of birth narrative. Next thing, we have one little scene when he's 12 years old. And the next thing we see, he's 30-something. We don't have, we have a big gap of what happened. We don't know what home life was like for Jesus and his brothers and sisters. But we have little hints dropped throughout some of the Gospels. And I want to show you these today because this is significant because this is part of James' story. If you have a Bible, hold your finger here and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. If you don't, we'll have a slide. But in Mark 3, 
Jesus has already been serving for a couple months now. His ministry has begun. And quite honestly, so far, he's stirring it up. Okay, he's healed on the Sabbath. He has claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He has claimed to have authority to forgive sins, i.e. that he is God. He's got authority over sickness and disease. And so he is stirring it up. And in Mark 3, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, which is a little hillbilly, redneck town, small, not a lot of people there. And everybody is following him. And and here's what it says in Mark 3.20. Then he went home. And the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And you can imagine just thousands of people coming to this little town. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now think what's going on here. Jesus is doing all these things. People start talking. He comes to Nazareth. They're like, Mary, what is going on with your son? I'm hearing all sorts of things. Have you heard? The, 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 the brothers are like, dude, your bra, he's out of his mind, man. You better, you know, you got to you got to go get the guy. He's claiming to be God. And his family is like, somebody go get Jesus. He is, he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. All right, he's out of his mind. Someone go get that boy. Get him some ginger ale and chicken noodle soup. He's crazy. That is what they think. And that means, guess who thought that? James thought his brother was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And, and think about it. Walk in their shoes a little bit. I mean, someone in your family starts blogging or tweeting or putting on Facebook that they're God. What are you going to write? You're going to unfriend that person. Unfriend. Don't know him. Right? I mean, it's one thing. Yeah, he made the all-star team when he was 12, but son of God's a little bit of a stretch. Okay? That's the idea here. They think he's wacko. They're ashamed of him. Right? And you might say, oh, that's just early on in his ministry. You know, later on, surely they came around. Well, flip to the right. To John chapter 7. At this point in John 7, Jesus has about seven months left in his ministry before he's crucified. All right, so he's been serving. He's been out there doing it for two years. And what's just happened in chapter 6 is a bunch of his disciples walked away. The only ones left are the 12. It's it's a conversation Jesus has with them and says, hey, you guys want to go too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You have words of eternal life. So everybody's left him. In chapter 7, here's what happens. Verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he, know, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And notice verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. What they're saying is this. Jesus, you got to get out of this small hick town you got to leave Galilee. Galilee's in the north. It's, it's kind of like the outskirts. you got to get out of the country, dude. You're just kind of in the country. If you're truly God, if you're who you say you are, you got to go down to Jerusalem where it's happening. you got to go to the big city. That's where messiahs go. All right? you got to get people down there to believe in you. But it says, but they didn't. John, his brother Joseph, his brother Judas, his brother Simeon, his brother James, they don't believe in him. And so they're kind of like, Can I, you need to get out of town here. We can't get a date because of you. Leave, right? Go down there where everyone else is, right? Because not even his brother, not even James believed. And so he eventually goes, as you know, and they kill him because he claims to be God. You say, oh, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He absolutely claimed to be God. And in John chapter 10, 
They're about to stone him. And he says, what good deed are you stoning me for? They said, Not, no good deeds. We're stoning you because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. In Mark 16 or Mark 14, when he's being uh, kind of pressed by these Pharisees, he says, the high priest says, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man, which is a, a divine title, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garment and said, what further evidence, witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death. He claimed to be God, and that is why they killed him. Okay, that's why they killed him. And so they put him on a cross. Who was there when he put him on a cross? His mama. She was there when, when they tore his clothes, when they cast lots for his tunic. She was there when they nailed him to it. She was there when his chest stopped going up and down and he breathed his last. She was there when they ran a spear right through his heart to check if he was dead, when they didn't break his legs, but they broke the legs of thieves on his side. She was there. She was there when they took him down and they wrapped him in about 100 pounds of linen spices and, and put him in the tomb. And according to Jewish custom, they would have buried him the same day. Okay, they didn't have kind of an embalmment period like the Egyptians or anything. They, kind of, they buried him quick. And so who would have been there for that little funeral service if they even had a service? Mary would have been there. Guess who else would have been there? His brothers. They would have been there, his family. They saw that he was dead. They saw where the tomb was. They saw where they put him. They weren't like, well, he didn't really die. No, they saw it. His brothers saw him put in the grave, right? And then what happened? Two days later, here's what Paul says. Here's how he recounts it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Peter, to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He said Jesus was buried, but then he came out of the grave, he showed up and Peter saw him, and the 12 saw him, and over 500 folks saw Jesus. Isn't that great? Oh, but there's one more person that saw him. Then he appeared to James. Now, what was that meeting like? All right, I mean, how did it, we don't know how it took place. Maybe James is folding laundry or making his bed. He turns around and there's Jesus. Who knows? But what would his response have been like? Would he have been just silent? Would he have cried? Would he have run up and hugged him? Would he have been like, oh, I am in trouble now? Here I am, James. I'm alive, I conquered death, I conquered the grave. I told you I was God. Yes, you did. And yes, you are. And what you see at this point is James goes from skeptic, thinking his brother is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and he becomes a worshiper. And what was it that made the difference for James? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes James everything. And what does he say then back in James? I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He is my substitute. He is my savior. He is my all. He goes from skeptic to worshiper just like that. Why? Because of the resurrection. His resurrection. And it wasn't just him. His family you go back to the book of Acts chapter one. Remember last week we looked at Acts 1.8. Jesus promises, I'm gonna give you power when the Holy Spirit comes. He goes back into heaven and all those guys on the mountain, they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room and they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James, a bunch of the apostles are there. Guess who else is there? 
All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The ones who were like, get out of town. We need to get a date, and we can't get a date because everyone thinks we're crazy because of you. Now they're worshiping. Now they are followers. What was it that made the difference? The resurrection made the difference. And look, if anybody in that entire city would know that their brother was not God, it would have been those four men. They would have been like, no, 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 no. I remember when we were in 10th grade, we egged the rabbi's house, and Jesus was the one throwing it first, okay? All right, so this guy is not God. If anyone would have known that he was not who he said he was, it was his brother's. And if anyone was trying to fake it and they kind of, oh, we'll get a guy like a double and make him look like Jesus. If anyone would have known if it was their brother or not, it was, it was his brothers. They would have known it was a fake. They would have known he wasn't really alive. I mean, they're the ones that are not believing in him and all of a sudden they are worshiping him. What happened? The resurrection happened and it changed everything, right? It changed everything. Skeptic to worshiper. There's one more scene with James I want you to see. Flip to the right a few pages to Acts 15. Acts chapter 15, one of the most significant events in the early church. Hugely significant. What's going on now by this time is, is that not just Jews are getting saved, but Gentiles are getting saved as well. And there is this entire debate of what do we do with these Gentiles who are coming to faith? Do we, gotta, do we have to stop them from eating barbecue? And do we need to circumcise them? Okay, it's a big issue. What, what it really at its core is, is the doctrine of justification by faith. Is, is faith alone in Christ and what he's done enough to save someone? Or do they have to have some external mark? Do, they have to, do we have to make them become Jewish, in essence, to be followers of God? And it's a huge issue. And so Paul and Barnabas, who are at the kind of forefront of this debate, they, they come to Jerusalem because all the bigwigs are there, Peter and James and, and, and John and Matthew and all these guys, and they're all there, and they come and they just start talking about it. What should we do, right? What are we supposed to do with this? There's no New Testament written now. There's no Gospels. There's no Romans. There's no 1 Corinthians. None of it's written yet. This, this, they're just coming together. Maybe the book of James is written. That's about it. So they're coming together, and they're asking questions, and all the Gentiles are outside thinking, we don't care about the barbecue, but don't make us get circumcised. They got their fingers crossed, right? They're all outside, and they're waiting to hear what these guys say. And so Paul shares, and Barnabas shares, and Peter shares. And after everyone shares, there's almost this like silence where everyone's waiting for the Spirit to speak, and who's the Spirit going to speak through? And all of a sudden, one of the guys stands up, and it's James. And he says this. Everyone shared, and he says, Brothers, listen to me. I want you to feel the weight of that. Who's in the room here? This is not like beginner's Bible study class. This is not a bunch of new Christians. This is Peter. This is Matthew. This is John the Apostle. This is Barnabas. This is all these bigwigs. It'd be like walking to a room and there's Billy Graham over there and there's John Piper and there's R.C. Sproul, and there's Tim Keller, and there's you know, all these great men who have been just faithfully ministering for years and years, and they've been walking with Jesus, and they, these guys have seen him. And James takes charge and stands up and says, listen to me. Well, that's some weight. 
And he goes through a, a, just a kind of a speech, and he closes with this. He says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, i.e., don't make them do any of it, to which all the Gentiles outside said, woo, you know, they're all cheering, right? Let's go eat. So you can today go to Barnes because of James. That's why, okay, because of what he did. But I want you to see the authority and the weight and the clout that this guy has in the early church. He is the head, pretty much, of the church in Jerusalem, not Peter. If Peter was the first pope, he didn't know it. If you had one, it was James. He didn't have one, but it was James. He was in charge. They're listening to him. In fact, the apostle Paul is submitting to the apostle James. You say, well, Paul, didn't he write like the whole New Testament? Pretty much. But James only has one book. How come? Because he's such a heavy in the early church. And if you read Galatians 1, right after Paul gets saved, he goes off for a couple years. He finally makes his way to Jerusalem after three years. And everyone's scared of him because they're like, this is the guy that was killing everybody. He meets with two guys. He meets with Peter and he meets with James. And that's it. And he goes away. The next time he comes back is 14 years later. He says, and I met with Peter, John, and James again because he says they were pillars. And he comes because he's trying to plant churches in modern-day Turkey and go on these missionary journeys, and he wants their blessing. He wants them to send him. We want, you, we want to be under your authority, saying, I want, I want the authority of the Jerusalem church to send me. I'm not just some rogue guy out doing my own thing. I'm under the authority of these men. He puts himself under the authority of James. And so when you read back here in James chapter 1, James, a servant of God, what does it mean to the original audience? It means this. Who's it, when we're asking the question in a couple weeks, man, who is this guy in my grill? Because he's all up in my grill. You know who he is? He's the guy that knows Jesus better than anybody else did. He was his brother. And his life was transformed by the resurrection of Christ. He goes from doubter and skeptic and ashamed to worshiper. And that is huge. It's huge. And the early church, his nickname was James the Just. That's a good nickname, right? I mean, I, you know, mine like knucklehead. That's my nickname, right? That's like Holy Heather or Righteous Rick. That's a good, that's a good nickname, right? James the Just. That's what he's known as. He was also known as Camel Knees. That was not because he was bow-legged or anything. It's because he was such a prayer warrior that his knees were calloused because he prayed so much, right? And what they ended up doing to this, this guy they called James the Just, old Camel Knees, is in 62 AD, they took him to the top of the temple, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they said, deny your brother, in essence. D deny Jesus as the Messiah. Tell all these people to stop worshiping him as Messiah. The same temple that Jesus cleansed, the same temple that Jesus taught in, the same temple that he walked in daily, they put him on the roof of this puppy, and James' history says, said this, quoted this from Josephus. Why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself sits in heaven at the right hand of great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. They didn't like that answer, so they chucked him off. And he landed, and he didn't die. So they went, and they picked up stones, and they stoned him to death right there where his brother walked. 
where his brother taught. And as he was dying, history says, this is what he, what he said at the end. I beseech you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Where did he hear those words? His big brother. He was a pillar to the end. And then he was reunited with his half-brother, his Savior, his God. Entered into the joy of his master. So when you say, who is James? He's a guy that knows what it's like to be transformed by the living Christ. That's who he is. And he knows something about living out authentic faith. That's who he is. This is a guy who knows what it's like to go from skeptic, a non-believer to worshiper. And he knows what it looks like. So he has something to say about what it looks like to follow Christ. He's got authority. And so when we go, as we go into worship, this is what I want you to ask and think about. And praise team, you guys can come on up. What does the resurrection of Christ mean to you? How does it change your life? How has it changed your life? Because you say, oh, I'm the same as I was always. I haven't changed. Well, then I don't know if you've really been transformed by the gospel. And that's what this book is going to talk about. Because if you come into an encounter with the living God, it changes you from the inside out. And so this is a book that's going to show us what it looks like.